Susan will take a brief recess before completing the docket. We begin with League of United Latin American Citizens versus Abbott. Ms. Mauser. Good morning. May it please the court. The district court, in granting the state's motion to dismiss, primarily relied on two summary affirmances, one by this court in Hudson v. Bagot and one by the Supreme Court in Williams v. Virginia Board of Elections. For a summary affirmance to be controlling, the relevant inquiry is not whether all the three cases involve challenges to the winner-take-all implementation of the Electoral College. As the Supreme Court explained in Mandel v. Bradley, the relevant inquiry is whether the precise issues presented in that case were necessarily decided or presented in this case. As I understand it, and I'm asking so that you can correct me if I've got it wrong, the theory that you advance here of unconstitutionality would knock out the scheme for choosing electors in all 51 jurisdictions. Is that right? This case just focuses on Texas. Yes, I know that, but obviously we have to look at the impact of what we might do. Correct. We have filed four cases. We have filed two cases in red states by blue plaintiffs and two blue states by red plaintiffs. Is the answer to my question yes? If it goes to the Supreme Court, that's the likely outcome, yes. Well, I'm not talking about the outcome. I'm talking about if we adopt your rationale and express it as to Texas, but we say that you're completely right in your theory of unconstitutionality, then that, if applied to all 51 jurisdictions, would mean that the scheme in all 51 is unconstitutional. Yes, Your Honor, that could be the outcome. And that would even include Nebraska and Maine? We have not brought cases. They adopt a different methodology for allocating their electors. I understand that. They would have to follow the same principles that this court. I mean, they wouldn't necessarily be bound by a decision by this court. I understand that. It relates to Texas, but the implications could be that it has nationwide impact. And what sort of scheme or plan within a state would meet constitutional muster for choosing electors under the present congressional scheme, which has two senators and proportional number of representatives in each state? The relief that we have requested is not for this court to determine. Listen to the question that I'm asking you. I'm asking you, give us one or more examples of, I call them schemes, I don't mean that disparagingly, but schemes or plans that would meet the constitutional requirements in your view. The Supreme Court has considered one alternate scheme before in 1892 in the case of McPherson v. Blacker where single-member 
districts were used as opposed to the multi-member districts. And so that's one that the Supreme Court has considered before. You could have some proportional scheme where um, you, candidates had to get at least a certain percentage of, um, of votes so it wasn't so splintered so to take into account third parties, but it could be 10% or something like that, and then proportional based on that. Those are two possibilities, Your Honor. How would that work if Texas with 36 congressional districts and, and two senators? How, 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 how would that be implemented? You, you would look at what the popular vote was by the, the primary parties, and you would then um, allocate ba proportionally based on the popular vote. You, using using 36 as the denominator? Or, right. or using 38 as the denominator? Right. Wh which one? I mean, what, what, thir thir we, you would use the number of electoral votes that Texas now has. Which is 38, including the senators? Yes. So it would not be by congressional district. All right. What, what other uh, cases similar to this are pending in other parts of the country? What, what, I'm sorry, Your Honor. What other cases similar to the one you brought here is pending in other parts of the country? We have a, a case that has been argued in the First Circuit that has not yet been decided. We have a case that will be argued in the Ninth Circuit in March and a case in the Fourth Circuit. Uh, did, did, did the plaintiffs get any relief in the district courts? Uh? The, the motions to dismiss um, were granted in each of the district courts, largely based on the summary affirmances in these two cases. I read the uh, opinion of Judge Saris, the chief judge in the First Circuit, which is the one up on appeal at the First Circuit. Correct. And she determined that Williams was binding precedent and also uh, for similar reasons that's argued by counsel opposite that the prejudge that, that Williams was binding um, and then went into article two. So I guess my question is what arguments to us here are different in scope constitutionally than the ones that were presented to the district court in the First Circuit in which the First Circuit is pending their decision or said differently. So the, the arguments constitutionally the same in each of the cases. I know each state's different in terms of the numbers, but is the constitutional challenge that you're presenting any different here than what you argued to Judge uh, Saris to which she granted the 12B6? I, I think they're similar. I would just like to spend a few minutes explaining why Williams is not controlling here. Okay, one of the problems that you have, you've already started with, that's listening to the question and answering the question we asked, as opposed to the argument. We're going to let you make your argument, but it's helpful if you at least answer the question and then move on. So I was just asking you, were the arguments the same or similar? If that's a yes or no, if you can do that, then. I, I believe our arguments um, are slightly different here. Um, here we it's the same argument relative to Williams though, right? Not not exactly, Your Honor. Okay, tell me how it differs. We 
Before Judge Saris, which is one of the first cases we argued, I believe in the argument, the argument there very much focused on standing. And a standing argument was not made in this court. So that was the focus of that argument. I believe we did not, in that argument, the issue of intent was not addressed. Okay, not trying to confuse you. In that case, you argued that Williams was a summary affirmance by the Supreme Court, therefore not controlling. That's the same argument you make today, correct? Yes, Your Honor. Thus far, none of the courts have held that Williams' summary affirmance, though it may be, was not binding. Is that right? Correct. Okay, that's all I ask. In Williams, the district court concluded that invidious intent was required. But at that time, the district court did not have the precedent that we now have available today, identifying the factors that a court must consider in determining whether there was, in fact, invidious intent. Among the factors that a court needs to look at is the size of a district, the multi-district, and the percentage of members of that district that are elected through an at-large election. Cases such as Wickham v. Chavez and Rogers v. Lodge were decided after Williams and provide that guidance. In addition, at the time Williams was decided, the Supreme Court had not yet held that an at-large multi-member district was unconstitutional. The court first did that in the decision of White v. Register. In addition— In White, they said that multi-member districts aren't per se unconstitutional. Isn't that right? That's correct, Your Honor. You need to look at the—in Rogers v. Lodge, the court said you have to look at the degree of proportion. And also, the court in Rogers v. Lodge explained that intent does not just focus on the reason for adoption. You also have to focus on why the multi-member election is being maintained. And you can determine that not only based on direct evidence, but circumstantial evidence as to why it's being maintained. Here in our complaint, we allege the precise factors that Wickham v. Chavez and Rogers v. Lodge determined were relevant to whether a multi-member election, at-large election, is unconstitutionally diluted and whether it's indicative of invidious intent. You have to remember that this case was at the motion-to-dismiss stage. So the question is whether we stated a claim and whether we were entitled to discovery. In the district court, in addition to identifying the factors that Wickham and Rogers said were sufficient, we also, in response to the state's motion-to-dismiss, presented historical accounts as to why the result was adopted. It was adopted solely for partisanship and with the understanding, as Thomas Jefferson stated, the minority, to use his words, would be entirely unrepresented. That should have been sufficient to get past a motion-to-dismiss. 
In addition, we should have been entitled to conduct discovery on why today Texas is maintaining winner take all. That is equally as relevant to the intent inquiry as why it was originally adopted. As the court in Rogers v. Lodge said, even an electoral system that was adopted originally for a neutral person purpose can be maintained for a discriminatory one. And so you need to look at why it's being maintained. I want to also, in addition to the vote dilution law, we relied on Gray v. Sanders footnote 12. The district court did not address our arguments concerning footnote 12 of Gray v. Sanders, stating that the court in Williams cited Gray v. Sanders. It's true, it did. But it did so only for the uncontroversial proposition, one person, one vote. The plaintiffs in Williams did not present any argument concerning footnote 12, and the court did not address it. Here is the two-step election addressed in Gray v. Sanders. Plaintiffs' votes are counted at the first step of the election and are worth nothing. They're counted only for the purpose of being discarded, and they have no influence in the final vote for president. If you get around the problem of the binding effect of Williams, you then have the problem of the discretion the Constitution gives the states in the manner they select their electors embedded in the Constitution. That is correct, Your Honor. The states do have discretion, but they have to exercise it consistent with the Constitution, as the court in Williams v. Rhodes explained. Well, I mean, you don't allege any invidious discrimination. We allege factors that are indicative of an electoral system that's consistent with an intent to discriminate, an intent for an electoral system to operate to minimize or cancel out the voting strength of minority voters. Here we have a situation where plaintiffs are assured zero representation every time in the electoral college, and that's really maximally disproportional. There really is not a dilution case that's so absolute and extreme. It's really unprecedented when you look at dilution law. Is it a legitimate factor for a state to wish to maximize its clout in terms of the national election by having a greater differential, in this case 38 to zero, rather than some fraction that would not give it that much influence? I'm asking, is that a legitimate factor among others, or is it per se illegitimate in the sense that, as you say, it might disadvantage an electoral minority? That's the precise rationale the state has advanced, and that reason really proves the problem. No matter what electoral system the state uses, it will have the same number of electors. 
what it really says is the state is interested in maximizing the the power of the party in power as opposed to the state as a whole because no matter what the state will have the same number of electors because that's determined by the Constitution not whether they're using winner take all miss Naja your initial time has expired but we've interrupted you with a lot of questions you can have one more minute if there's anything else that you didn't get a chance to touch I just want to spend a few seconds on one person one vote the just in Williams the court did not address whether winner take all satisfies the minimum requirements for non-arbitrary treatment of voters the district court acknowledged that that is is a relevant standard and without regard to invidious intent but it never applied that standard to the allegations in our complaint we surely if anything alleged a system that does not provide non-arbitrary and non-disparate treatment of voters we allege that that winner take all treats minority voters differently with respect to our First Amendment claim the district court did not allege or address the core of our First Amendment claim and that is the right to full and effective participation in the presidential election process and then for the compelling state interest the state improperly this we've addressed what the state's identified interest is but the motion to dismiss stage where we advanced a countervailing explanation for winner take all the district court improperly weighed the two competing explanations when the motion to dismiss stage all reasonable inferences should have been drawn in plaintiff's favor thank you your honor you save time for rebuttal thank you mr. Frederick it please the court I'd like to start by making clear what claims the plaintiffs have and have not brought in their lawsuit the plaintiffs have brought two claims that are before the court here a one-person one-vote claim and a first and 14th amendment right of expression and association claim they have not brought any constitutional vote dilution claims that is they have not brought any claims alleging a discriminatory intent and a discriminatory effect you can see this at ROA 66 their complaint and ROA 215 which is their response to the motion to dismiss now they've hinted on appeal that they're trying to expand their one-person one-vote argument into some kind of intentional partisan vote dilution claim but they haven't pleaded that the only vote dilution claim that they have ever advanced in this case is a race-based vote dilution claim under section 2 of the Voting Rights Act now they have abandoned that claim on appeal but that claim couldn't have supported a partisan vote dilution theory anyway because the statutory text is limited to racial minority groups and to the extent that they try now to develop a new partisan vote dilution claim on appeal that claim is conclusively foreclosed by Rucho versus common cause which 
rejects the notion that there is any constitutional claim for partisan vote dilution. If you look at Part 4A of Rucho versus Common Cause, it expressly rejects any such theory. <clears throat> so to focus on their one person, one vote claim, that claim is foreclosed by binding Supreme Court precedent, the summary affirmance in Williams, because that case rejected the very same claim that plaintiffs bring here, which is a one person, one vote challenge to a state's winner take all allocation of electoral votes. That's enough to dispose of their claim and affirm the district court on, on that issue. But even if it weren't foreclosed by binding Supreme Court precedent, the one person, one vote claim fails on its own terms because the nature of a one person, one vote claim is malapportionment or a failure to equalize population so that everybody gets approximately the same weight to their vote. So the general rule, this is from Gray versus Sanders, is that once you pick the geographic unit for which a representative is to be chosen, then every person in that unit must have an equally weighted vote. But the court explained in Westbury versus Sanders a year later that that rule is followed automatically when representatives are chosen as a group on a statewide basis. And so that resolves their claim here. Now, there has been some confusion in their theory about whether they're alleging that Texas conducts a statewide election for president or a statewide election for 38 presidential electors. But for the one person, one vote claim, it makes no difference because a multi-member at-large election may be subject to challenges, but they're not one person, one vote challenges. By definition, that provides everyone an equal vote. Was there, was there a time in Texas, if you know, when the electors' names were on the ballot? <clears throat> I don't, I, I think the answer is yes. I don't, I can't. It's okay if you're not sure. Yeah. I can't cite any authority. I, I know that there was a suggestion below that in Williams, the Virginia electors' names were on the ballot. Um, and we have explained in our briefing that that doesn't make a difference either because it was clear on the Virginia ballot that you're not actually voting for electors. You don't get to pick and choose your electors. You're voting for a slate, which corresponds to your vote for president. So I think it, it wouldn't change the analysis. Now, the contrary authorities that they attempt to rely on are White versus Register and Bush versus Gore. This really can, the White versus Register, they're really confused one person, one vote and race-based vote dilution claims. Uh, and in fact, White versus Register demonstrates that distinction because it addresses both kinds of claims and it addresses them separately. Um, this is at 763 of the Supreme Court's opinion. That's the one person, one vote claim that deals with the permissible deviation from equal population. And then at 765, the court moves on to the different claim about race-based vote dilution in multi-member districts. And so the court found that those multi-member districts were being used to invidiously cancel out or minimize the voting strength of racial groups. That's a race-based vote dilution claim, not a one-person, one-vote claim. And the court's holding there did not purport to modify the one-person, one-vote doctrine. Bush versus Gore is, to put it simply, it's a case of arbitrary treatment. The, the equal protection problem in Bush versus Gore was that the quest, there was a question of voters' intent based on the ballot, and the problem was that 
voters or, or elector, election administrators in different precincts, and sometimes even different administrators in the same precinct were applying different standards to determine the intent of the voter. And so the Supreme Court held, limited to these circumstances, that's arbitrary and disparate treatment. So that's the basis of the Equal Protection Clause violation, and it doesn't modify the doctrine of one person, one vote. If I could move on to the First Amendment claim, the district court correctly dismissed this claim, and it held that the plaintiffs alleged no cognizable burden on their rights of assembly, expression, or association. That is correct, and the court should affirm, because the plaintiffs don't allege that their candidates are excluded from the ballot. They don't allege any impediment to casting a vote, any denial of equal access to registration, or that their ballots are not counted. In fact, their complaint alleges just the opposite. They admit their ballots are counted equally. They don't allege that they are subject to any harm by reason of their views. The only harm they allege is that they don't get a majority of the votes, and when they don't get a majority, they don't get any representation. But the effect of the majoritarian system is not a burden on anyone's First or Fourteenth Amendment rights. The Supreme Court's been clear that the Constitution doesn't guarantee that speech will persuade or that advocacy will be effective, and the Constitution certainly doesn't guarantee that a political party's votes will translate to political power in proportion to their share of the statewide election. To the extent there was any doubt about that, and I don't think there was, it was eliminated in Rucho versus Common Cause. And so even if there were a cognizable burden here, it couldn't outweigh the state's interest in maximizing its influence as a state in the national election. And it's important to be clear, that's not a partisan interest. That's a party-neutral interest in having the state's majority have the maximum impact regardless of which party wins. So I think the big picture here is that the winner-take-all system does not deny one person one vote or violate any expressional or associational rights of Democrats or third parties in Texas any more than it imposes a burden on Republicans or third parties in California. And really the big theoretical problem with the plaintiff's theory of injury here is that it presumes an electoral system that doesn't exist, which is a national election for president. Texas has provided a system where the voters in Texas vote for the president in Texas. That's the only presidential election that happens in Texas. The fact that they don't have an individual equally weighted right to vote or an individual equally weighted vote in the national election for president is not a constitutional injury because there is no national election for president and no person has a constitutional right to an individual equally weighted vote in the national election. Unless there are further questions, we would respectfully urge that the court affirm the district court. Thank you, Mr. Frederick. Mr. 
I'd first like to address the um, state's argument with respect to Rootshire. That addressed um, single-member districts, which are neutral on their face, and whether there's a standard, a judicial standard for, for reviewing them. Unlike under the Elector Clause, which applies here, under the Elections Clause, Congress has oversight over how congressional districts are drawn. Here, that's not the case. The only um, branch of the government that can review this are, is the court. And, and that sets that apart from each other. The state's argument would overturn some significant precedents, such as McPherson v. Blocker, which said the court can review on an equal protection basis how states allocate their electors. There, it just found that it was constitutional how it was done. It was done by single-member districts. The state cited Westbury. It's important to remember that Westbury is, was not decided under the 14th Amendment. In fact, the, um, the court specifically had a footnote saying, we're deciding it only under the elections clause. With um, respect to the state's argument that we did not allege a dilution claim, we, in, for instance, paragraph 43 of our complaint, say that under this system, all of Texas's 38 electors are members of the political party that nominated the candidate that wins the popular vote. The consequence of this system is to give no effect to the votes of the citizens who voted for a losing candidate. That's exactly the standard for dilution, to a system that's conceived or operated to minimize or cancel out um, the voting strength of minority voters. Um, with respect to the state's argument that um, plaintiffs' votes were counted, as the Supreme Court said in Reynolds v. Sims, the right to vote freely for the candidate of one's choice is of the essence of a democratic society, and any restrictions on that right strike at the heart of representative government, and the right of suffrage can be denied by a debasement or dilution of the weight of a citizen's vote just as effectively as by wholly prohibiting the franchise <coughs> of the franchise. In addition, the state said that um, our claims were not justiciable because they involve um, a political party, but that's inconsistent also with Supreme Court precedent. In Whitcomb v. Chavez, for instance, at pages 143 to 44, the Supreme Court said, but we have deemed the validity of multi-member districts justiciable, recognizing also that they may be subject to challenge where the circumstances of a particular case may operate to minimize or cancel out the voting strength of racial or political elements of the voting population. I, I think it's also just very important to remember that this was a motion to dismiss. So the question is whether we stated a claim and, and the allegations in this complaint it clearly do. And it was error for the minimum the district court to dismiss with prejudice. Thank you, Your Honor. All right, thank you. Uh, 
Ms. Mauser, your case is under submission. Next case.